Ramadan, this word elicits joy and reflection among the Muslims around the world. It is also an occasion for the not even water question to which there is an easy answer, not even water. Muslims who observe fasting in Ramadan abstain from food, drinks, and sexual intercourse from early dawn to sunset. Needless to say, and this usually means it's absolutely needed to be said, they can engage in such activities between sunset and dawn. Assalamu alaikum, greetings, and welcome to episode two of the Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast, a production of Maidan, an online publication of the Ali Wural Ak Center for Global Islamic Studies at George Mason University. My name is Ermin Sinanovic. I'm curator and host of Islam on the Edges. There is much more to Ramadan, though, than simple acts of abstaining from food, drink, and sex. Families gather, communities pray together, the sound of the Quranic recitations fills the air, the aromas of Ramadan delicacies tempt us in anticipation of the iftar, break of the fast meal. Dates, water, sweets, prayers, food, laughter, reflection, more prayers, the Quran, more food and drinks. It's all part of Ramadan lore. It's a season like no other. Children enjoy Ramadan. They try to imitate the adults by fasting parts of the day. They gorge on Ramadan delicacies, fall asleep during the prayers, cry if they are not awakened for the pre-dawn sehor meal, and wait in anticipation of the Eid gifts after Ramadan is over. It is also refreshing to see a community coming together to celebrate lack of consumption. In the world in which there is rampant consumerism, unbridled capitalism, environmental degradation, overindulgence, and oversaturation in just about anything, at least in the more affluent societies, it is an act of redemption to be involved in such a profound spiritual act of devotion like fasting. At the same time, Muslims live in the world, so they are affected by the mentioned spiritually eroding activities. But at least for a month, we try to remind ourselves and the world that another way of living is possible, and that at the deepest levels, humans are defined not by what we consume, but what we believe in. This episode is called Ramadan on the Edges. I interview four scholars and activists in four different countries on four continents. In North America, I speak with Dr. Nisa Muhammad, Assistant Dean for Religious Life at Howard University in Washington, D.C. On the European continent, my guest is Dr. Ahmed Alibashic, an Associate Professor at the Faculty of Islamic Studies, University of Sarajevo in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We will then move to Africa, where my interlocutor is Ibtissam Ahmed, a lawyer and independent researcher in Cape Town, South Africa. Finally, I talked to Lean Ifa Nefatufina from Indonesia. She is currently a PhD student at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. I hope you will enjoy the episode and learn so much about the Muslim practices of Ramadan on four continents. Our first guest is Dr. Nisa Muhammad. She is assistant Dean for Religious Life at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Dr. Nisa. Assalamu alaikum and Ramadan Mubarak to your guests. Thank you so much for having me. Wa alaikum salam and Ramadan Kareem to you and to everyone else. Uh, it is our pleasure to have you with us. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Nisa, can you uh, tell us a little bit about uh, African-American Muslim community and the observance of Ramadan, what kind of cultural practices, how it is observed in, in, in African-American Muslim community, and what would you like people to know about the observance of Ramadan? So Ramadan is a very special time, of course, for all Muslims. And for African-American Muslims, it's a very special and joyous time as well. And you'll see a variety of different expressions of joyfulness and beauty during this month. So families, of course, some families decorate their homes. You'll see signs or signs or things on the front of their door that says Ramadan Mubarak, because a lot of times people have children. And so they want to pass down the culture of what Ramadan is all about to their children. 
And so they decorate their homes, their big signs, they have lights up. And so they just have amazing opportunities to share really the beauty of what Ramadan is all about. And the big things happen with the Eid, you know, which is also another joyous event. And so African-American families get together and prior to COVID, you know, people had iftars at their homes. They would visit different people's homes to break fast. And it's just an amazing experience. Yeah, and uh, food obviously is a big part, even though we abstain from food and drink during the day. In the evening, we like to prepare a bit more special meals in Ramadan. So what are the kind of meals that you would find um, in in African-American Muslim community during Ramadan? So, of course, food is a major thing, and African-Americans, of course, love to cook, and we have our own unique culture. So you'll find one of the main staples in a lot of African-American homes, you'll find bean pie. Bean pie is a unique dish that is um, attributed significantly to African-American Muslims that started with the Nation of Islam and has been spread throughout all other African-American Muslim communities. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful staple that people eat for suhoor, they eat it for iftar. It's just a great thing to experience, you know, from fish to chicken to macaroni and cheese to lamb. It's just a variety of different meals that people experience. Yeah, and uh, when you mentioned the uh, the bean pies, uh, my first time I came across it was, I believe, at Ben's Chili Bowl in in DC. <laughs> yes, uh, they sell it at the counter. I remember it. Uh, it's a uh, it's an institution in Washington, you know. And the first time I went there, I saw them being sold on the counter. I didn't know the historical significance of it. I, I learned about it later on. So I'm so glad that you bring it up. Um, and, and now you can actually find, I think, in, in a lot of Muslim stores, they'll be selling those, at the, you know, near the cashier. They would have some of the bean pies, I think, especially in the D.C. area, right? Absolutely. In the D.C. area, where we have a wide variety of black Muslims. You, you can find bean pies just about anywhere. Yeah. Um, so uh, what are some of the main religious devotional practices uh, within the uh, African-American Muslim community during Ramadan? How is it observed religiously? Um, what are the kind of practices? How do both men and women and children partake in all those uh, observances, if you will? So, of course, you know, there's the Fajr prayer. You know, families get up for Sahur before before um, the dawn, and they experience Fajr prayer together as well. And then just like other Muslims, they do the five daily salats and then the Tawir prayer at night. And so a lot of times families um, go together for this pre-COVID, you know, to Tarweer prayers together. Now that everything is online, it's an opportunity for families to spend a lot more time together, growing spiritually, reading the Quran together, and having an opportunity to spend more family time because a lot of families, of course, are not going out to the masjid or Islamic centers and are really spending more time at home growing together as a family. Yeah, and um, one thing that I'm learning more about is the central role uh, that women play during the month of Ramadan, obviously being the pillars of families from cooking, which is sometimes shared with their spouses, but oftentimes it is women who do most of this, um, to other devotional practices, recitation of the Quran and other things. Uh, Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about how it is in your community? So all of those, all of those things and above. So women are very, very uh, significant in terms of definitely the cooking. Sometimes the cooking begins in the morning and the women are cooking for the breaking of the fast all day. And it's a joyous, it's a joyous event to feed the children, to be able to feed the family. And women take a great pleasure in being able to cook these amazing meals for their families. Yeah. Um, And um Another thing that I wanted to ask you about is you obviously work at a university as assistant dean for religious life, and you coordinate activities for Muslim students on campus. I know that things have changed since COVID, but prior to COVID, what are some of the main things that you do with students, especially during the month of Ramadan, and how is it observed in higher education? So it's a it's an amazing time. Typically, since I've been at Howard University, Ramadan has been during the summer and students were not on campus. But we would always have an iftar, our office of the dean of the chapel, which is the office in which I work under, always sponsored an iftar. And we would invite students and faculty from all around the university to come and break fast with the Muslims. And it's a very joyous experience because for a lot of people, they learn about Islam at our, at our iftar. 
They learn about Islam from the food. They learn about Islam from the different speakers we have to connect the students with the faculty and staff and other community people. So it's also an opportunity to do dawah. People don't know what, it, what Islam is, but they hear there's an iftar on campus, they hear there's gonna be some good food. Let's go hang out with the Muslims. And so it's an opportunity for us to really share the beauty of what Islam is all about. Yes, and uh, one thing that I think many of us are still learning more about is the central place that African-American Muslims occupy in the larger, you know, tapestry of, of, uh, of American Islam in general. Uh, you cannot talk about Islam in the United States today without mentioning Muhammad Ali, Malcolm X, Elijah Muhammad, Amina Wadud, and many, many other people who have contributed greatly, not only to Islam in the United States, but are known globally and contribute globally intellectually in terms of activism as powerful symbols for justice and so on. Can you maybe reflect on that a little bit, especially as we are in Ramadan? So that's an amazing statement that you've said, because typically Black Muslims have that it's, it's historic and extravagant history of social activism, of justice, of all of the people that you named. But typically when you look on the media and they show reflections and pictures of Ramadan, you don't see Black Muslims. Mm -hmm. And so in 2016, a young Black Muslim said, you know what, I'm tired of being invisible in the world of what's going on in Ramadan and started something called Blackout Eid. So that it's an opportunity for Black Muslims to share pictures of themselves during Ramadan and especially during the Eid. And so if you look or do a hashtag, look up that hashtag Blackout Eid, you will see amazing pictures of African-American families showing the beauty of Ramadan as they experience it. From the Eid to Ramadan cooking to their children to their people get dressed up for these pictures. It's like a photo shoot exhibit, yeah. but it's a wonderful opportunity to show exactly what you're talking about. That kind of history that Black Muslims have that is often invisible from the media in terms of when they talk about Ramadan, they're not showing what's going on with Black Muslims. Yeah. So, so what do you think that we could do collectively to highlight? because this is a major part of our Muslim community in the United States, but like you said, often missing in, in, in public representations. So what can we do collectively to, to, to remedy this? So I think, you know, the Ummah has a responsibility to see Black Muslims as valuable parts of our community. You know, as a master that I go to prior to COVID for Iftar, they would always have like an African-American night where the food, the food typically was South Asian food every other night. But a couple of nights throughout Ramadan, because they had iftars every night, they would have African-American food. And it would just be a celebratory event because it was a mixed master community of a little bit of everybody. And everybody wants to feel a part of what's going on. And if you only have one certain kind of food, if you only have one certain kind of person giving the, you know, Juma Kutba all the time, people are going to feel excluded and not feel like they are a part of what's going on. So when it's African-American night, you see all the African-American Muslims bringing food, donating food, helping to serve because they feel a part of this master community. And it's just a wonderful example of how you can make people feel a part of what's going on in a very simple way by just including them in the, in the menu. Including them in the menu, so that would be a start, right? But then it <laughs> yes. shouldn't stop at that, right? No, it should absolutely not stop at that. People have to see that Black Muslims are valuable. You know, have a African-American imam give the kutbah, you know, one Friday or a couple of Fridays. You know, that's a major concern at different universities across the country where Muslims will go four years at a university and never hear from a Black imam. And that gives them a subtle message that Black Muslims don't have the ability or the capability to deliver the word or of Islam. Knowledge. Or the knowledge, exactly, yeah. to deliver the word of Islam. And that's so false. That's a false entity. It is. It is. I remember when, uh, you know, Akbar Muhammad, uh, the son of, you know, the late Elijah Muhammad, mm -hmm. I had a conversation with him in Binghamton, and he used to tell me, he said, Look, people think that we and the black Muslim community did not really study Islam or know Islam. And he says, I can tell you that's false because he said the father he used to refer to, to his father, Elijah Muhammad, as the father. Mm -hmm. you know, the father he <laughs> used to have a library of books from all over the world in all types of languages. And he used to read avidly. And he sent us, his sons, you know, him, Akbar Muhammad, Warisuddin, and others, to study 
uh, Arabic to study in the Muslim world, to bring back that knowledge as well and to spread it in the community. So I think this aspect of knowledge within the African-American Muslim community uh, is often overlooked by people who do not have an intimate uh, understanding of what really happened in, in history. You're absolutely right. And the part of it is that it makes a, it, it bothers the self-esteem of young black Muslims who want to see themselves a part of what's going on. They want to hear from someone who looks like them and representation matters. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, and it's really tragic that on a lot of campuses, young black Muslims are leaving the MSA because they don't feel a part of what's going on. And so we want to be able to change that. We want to be able to make everybody feel welcome, everybody feel wanted and know that black American Muslims are knowledgeable about Islam. They're well studied. Yeah, definitely. So Dr. Nista, I know this COVID pandemic has changed a lot. Can you maybe enlighten us a little bit about how within the African-American Muslim community, what has been the effect of COVID, especially when it comes to the observance of Ramadan? So one of the things that I've really noticed, and this was happened last year, of course, people are doing all kinds of online programs to read and experience the Quran. So I work with the organization called Sapolo Square, and it's an organization, an online resource about Black Muslims. And every day we have a reflection from a Black person on the Quran. And so we show this beauty on reflecting on the Quran through poetry, through tafsir, through short stories. And it's an amazing experience to see that Black Muslims are studied and that they can really show the beauty of the Quran. Another opportunity is that for Eid, people have drive through Eids. They don't want to give up not experiencing Eid. They don't want to give up not seeing each other. So people have decorated their cars. They go to the drive-through Eid, pick up meals, and they experience it like that. But also drive-through iftars. There are communities where you don't have to worry about cooking. You can just drive up and pick up a meal and go. And that shows that you know people in the Black community are really trying to take care of each other, even though we can't be together socially mm -hmm. because of COVID. But we can still experience a meal together, even if it's just a drive-through. Well, that's amazing. Um, and finally, Dr. Nisa, I would like you to put your preacher's hat now on and uh, share maybe a personal reflection on Ramadan with us. So I think a personal reflection on Ramadan is just the beauty of reading the Quran and knowing that Allah is talking to me. I think for a long time, I used to wonder, would God really talk to me? I mean, who am I? But during Ramadan, I have the wonderful reflections of reading the Quran and hearing God talk to me and hearing Allah speak to me through his words in the Quran and understanding it and reading the same thing over and over again and getting a different meaning and hearing Allah say to me the value of who I am as a Muslim and giving me guidance and direction as a Muslim. And so I think that's really just the beauty of it, you know, just a little personal reflection. And one other little tidbit, so I have a granddaughter, she's like three, and I was taking her home. She spent the weekend with me and I was taking her home on Sunday and her home is all decorated. They have Ramadan Mubarak, they have signs. Up. And she says, Umi, we have Ramadan in my house. You don't have Ramadan at your house. I didn't have any decorations up. But she was like, Umi, we have Ramadan in my house because she's feeling so joy seeing all the decorations. And, you know, her mom is really celebrating and they're all excited about it. And she was just very happy to let me know we have Ramadan in my house. And so that was just a wonderful reflection that she, even at three, she's finding joy in Ramadan and with the expressions that her family does. And so we want Ramadan to be at everybody's house. I need to get some decorations. <laughs> yeah, I think we all do. Uh, yes. That's that's wonderful. And I know that children just love Ramadan. And, and I think it shows that when parents and communities put little effort to make the Ramadan special, that uh, kids really respond to it. They absolutely do. They absolutely do. And we want everyone to be thinking about that. Have Ramadan at your house so that the children can enjoy it. And especially with Eid, you know, the Eid gifts and the presents, you know, children really love that. And it's a wonderful experience for them. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nisam Mohammed. That was Dr. Nisam Mohammed, Assistant Dean for Religious Life at Howard University in Washington, D.C. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for having me. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. وعليكم السلام ورحمة الله وبركاته. Our next guest is Dr. Ahmed Ali Barshic. Uh, Ahmed, welcome. Thank you for in having me. Uh, Dr. Ahmed Ali Barshic is Associate Professor of Islamic Studies at the Faculty of Islamic Studies, the University of Sarajevo. 
He has a PhD in political science from the University of Sarajevo. He had studied Islamic studies and political science at the International Islamic University Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. He had published widely on Islam in Europe, Islam in Bosnia and Herzegovina, on uh, politics of the Middle East, uh, as well as various issues in contemporary Islamic thought. And it is a pleasure to have him with us in our Islam on the Edges uh, podcast, the Ramadan issue. Uh, Dr. Ahmed, I would like to start by asking you a personal question about uh, observing Ramadan in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Can you tell us a bit about your memories growing up a Muslim in Bosnia, which was then part of Yugoslavia? So in Bosnia and Yugoslavia, how was it growing up as a Muslim and how was Ramadan observed back then, especially in your family? Yeah, um, I have uh, three distinct memories of, of, of uh, uh, Ramadan's, Ramadan time in my uh, youth years. Uh, one, as a child in a Muslim village. Uh, second, uh, as a student at uh, Ghazi Husra Bay Madrasa in Sarajevo. And third, as a soldier in the Yugoslav army. So um, let me start with the, with the first one. Uh, I grew up in uh, late 1970s and early 80s um, in a traditional Muslim family. Uh, and Ramadan during those days was in summertime, um, uh, which means that uh, we had to fast something like 18 plus hours uh, while doing our uh, field work and farm work. You know, I still remember very vividly um, a relative, a neighbor of mine, uh, uh, an old lady, you know, uh, doing the farm work and uh, fasting and bleeding, but she wouldn't stop, you know. So uh, not everybody fasted, obviously. Uh, those were late socialist years, but many, many people did, especially ladies, uh, did fast. Uh, we had a um, very active very dedicated imam who was uh, persecuted by the regime at that time, but he, he I think, uh, takes credit for a lot of uh, religious life, especially during Ramadan uh, that we uh, had in our village. Um, it was simple. Uh, uh, mosque uh, and simple mosque life, but it was especially uh, lively during during Ramadan, thanks to this uh, Imam who would uh, gather everyone uh, for the daily prayers and do uh, extra uh, dhikr after the prayers we call Tawheed. So it was very very memorable uh, time. Uh, when I moved to Madrasa as a high a high school uh, pupil, um, at that time uh, there was deficit of Imams in. Um, Muslim jamaats uh, in congregations. So uh, even uh, the first class uh, students aged 16 and 17 had to go to uh, smaller congregations uh, during Ramadan to lead uh, taraweeh prayers and so on. Uh, and uh, I, I spent four Ramadans like that as, as a guest Imam in remote areas of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and so those are really like an apprentice. Exactly, and those are you know everyone who has gone through those uh, those experiences. Those are unforgettable, you know. Um, and finally, um, I had this uh, my last um, Yugoslav Ramadan. I, I spent as a soldier in the. Marine Corps of uh, Yugoslav National Army. That was special in a different sense, you know. Uh, we usually uh, spend Ramadan in our community and uh, we, we relate Ramadan to community activities and community life. But that Ramadan, uh, I was, so to say, alone in what I was doing. And uh, being in such a godless, I would say, environment, uh, augmented all that Ramadan means to, 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 to a believer. So that was a, that was a special experience uh, of its own, yeah. So th those yeah. would be my three distinct, very distinct memories 
of Ramadan in Yugoslavia. Uh, I, I, let me just conclude by saying that um, those were years of um, nascent um, religious revival. And those were, uh, although we probably were not um, conscious of that fact, but those were nice times to be a young uh, young Muslim. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. And um, I especially am interested in something you said. You said uh, not everybody fasted, but many did, especially ladies. Can you elaborate on that? Um, you see, um, the socialist regime of Yugoslavia obviously did its best to, um, um, you know, integrate as many people as possible into its own organizations and activities and so on and so forth. Uh, it was much easier to do with the working class in rural in uh, urban areas. When it came to uh, rural areas, uh, people were peasants were much more independent from the regime than than, than working class. But even there, uh, you know, um, the men in the family, they had to go along. They often worked in factories and so on. So they had to keep clear of the mosques and religious life and so on if they wanted to prosper in the, in, in the society. However, ladies were left alone. So they kind of took care of religious life and uh, raising children uh, religiously and so on. So they were really the pillars of uh, religious uh, Islamic life and identity at that time. Yeah, I'm so glad you're highlighting that because I think that had been experienced with many of us who grew up during that time. Even if we didn't grow up in a very practicing, very pious families, it was usually the mothers that kept whatever was left of Islamic practices in our families. Um, and I know personally, in my case, that was definitely true, you know. Um, so I'm really glad that you highlighted that. So let us now fast forward to present time, if we, if, if you will. Uh, what are some of the main practices in Bosnia today during the month of Ramadan? Uh, yeah, I understand by today, um, pre-pandemic times, uh, we'll, yeah. we'll come to, to, to the present, to last year and this year. Sure. Um, at, uh, at the private, uh, if I may say, private and community levels, uh, uh, at the private uh, level, Ramadan is a time for uh, family gatherings, uh, especially iftars. You know, families and friends come together uh, and then they, they um, break their fast together and, and it's, it's a great uh, time for, for everyone. Uh, kids especially remember those 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 moments. Um, however, much more is going on at the community level. Um, the, the mosque life intensifies. Obviously, uh, the uh, Bosnian Muslims are not um, known for you know praying five daily prayers in the mosque uh, frequently. But uh, during Ramadan, that that changes a lot, quite a lot especially with the, the Aisha prayer and Taraweeh, which is attended, in, attended usually in great numbers by uh, young and old and, and kids and everyone. And that um, is the last prayer of the day, right? Yes, yes, prayer. exactly. And um, there is also uh, in many mosques um, uh, something called Muqabala, uh, uh, which is the recitation of the Quran by... Usually, people who memorize Quran, Quran by, by heart, Hufaz uh, al-Quran, sometimes, um, often just male, but occasionally there are separate muqabalas for ladies as well. Uh, so uh, those are usually done some, after uh, Salat al-Asr, but sometimes they are done after Zuhr or even um, morning prayer, Subah prayer. Um, in the morning and in the afternoon as well. Morning and the afternoon, yes. Um, I remember in the, the Yugoslav times, these, these uh, if you like, um, ceremony, sermons were, were conducted only in few major mosques uh, throughout Bosnia. And there were not enough Hufaz al-Quran to, to do it by, you know, reading Quran from memory. 
Uh, and uh, during Ramadan, many of those people had to come from northern, what is today northern Macedonia, which was part of Yugoslavia at that time. But alhamdulillah, today in Bosnia, there are some 500 Hufazul Quran. Out every third, almost every third is, is uh, a lady or a girl. Uh, so uh, there are many of those uh, being done uh, today in Bosnia. Of course, there are many uh, waz uh, or preaching uh, occasions, uh, both um, on-site and online. And uh, everything peaks, the, the mosque life peaks on the 27th night of uh, Ramadan, which in Bosnia is often call, called Laylatul Qadr. You know, uh, we, we, we all the time hear uh, a hadith uh, that we don't know when the Laylatul Qadr is, but in Bosnia we know it's on the 27th of, of uh, Ramadan somehow. Um, of course, uh, Ramadan is time of giving and charitable activities, so many of that goes, uh, uh, goes on, and uh, as well as some of the more, I would say, uh, mundane things like having uh, minaret candles and cannonades. Uh, would you say cannonades? Uh, these yeah, gun, gun the shots. Cannons, the cannons that's, that signal end of the, of the, of the fast. End of the day, yes. Uh, every day. And um, that's from a nearby hill or somewhere. That's also, uh, you know, becoming like a landmark of, of, of Ramadan on its own. So uh, when it comes to Bosnia, people say that uh, Ramadan is special in Sarajevo itself, uh, more than in any other uh, place, especially during summertime, when, when you can do your prayers outside, Taraweeh as well, uh, on the sofas and, and in the courtyards of the mosques. Um, uh, there, years ago, um, there were many um, activities for youth, including uh, you know, these after Taraweeh, uh, post party, uh, yeah. post Taraweeh party, so to say, yes. I mean, gatherings and teas and yeah. coffees. Unfortunately, because of migration uh, to, to, to Western Europe and, um, you know, depopulation, uh, there are less and less uh, young people in Bosnian uh, villages and uh, less and less of those, those events. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, that's that's very interesting, a very good answer to, to the question. But you mentioned at the beginning about COVID. So, so what you just described is a pre-COVID practice. How is Ramadan observed now when we have the COVID pandemic? It has become um, a, a fully family affair, so to say, you know, um, in many, not in all of Bosnia, but in many parts of Bosnia, we have a curfew at the moment uh, from 9 p.m. Uh, onwards. So many mosques are closed. There are no taraweeh uh, prayers. Uh, so there are no gatherings. Gatherings are not uh, allowed. So uh, it, it's become a very family uh, uh, event. And uh, myself, I enjoy it a lot because I, alhamdulillah, have quite a large family. But uh, it's been tough, mentally tough, um, on uh, people who are alone, who have no nobody around them. So it's been a, a challenging, challenging time. Yeah. Um, a lot, of course, I'm... sorry, if I may just add, a lot has sure. moved to some of the activities have moved online. So instead of, um, you know, lectures in the mosque and visiting uh, lecturers, you have a lot of those going online, either on internet or various media outlets, and there are so many nowadays. Uh, so even uh, recitation of the Quran, people follow online. Uh, you know, reciters do it in the mosque, but then there are there are um, recordings and there are uh, live live uh, uh, transmissions. Uh, but obviously, not everything can be done online. And uh, people are missing the, the, the personal touch to it. Yeah, the social aspect of it. And social I think aspect, that is the case yes. uh, in most places around the world nowadays. Um, and maybe this is a good place to conclude, maybe by sharing, if you, if you would like, to some personal reflections on Ramadan. Uh, is there anything that you would like your listeners to know based on your personal reflections, um, anything related to Bosnia that you would like them to know, especially when it comes to Ramadan? 
Um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Um, we, we have a lot of time to reflect during Ramadan, and that's what we are, I think, expected to do, not just do the formal prayers, readings of the Quran and so on. It all should be also uh, connected to the reflection, deep reflection of, of uh, what is going on around us. Um, and uh, personally, uh, as uh, this year, I think what comes often to my mind is that uh, this acknowledgement um, that uh, as we who have uh, abundant food and water, we who desist from those basic human needs because we, we obey God's command, uh, we also have to uh, reflect on the fact that uh, last year and this year uh, have hit uh, some members of our community, both locally and globally, much harder than the rest of us, you know. And I think this is the time to show our piousness, our, our righteousness, through extending our helping hand to them. Um, there will be times for other things in our community. There will be times for minarets and uh, I don't know what. But uh, I think that we have to be to, to be especially sensitive to those members of our community who have lost jobs, who have lost their uh, loved ones. Uh, some of them needs, uh, need us uh, financially. Others need us, others, elders need our services. Uh, and some other people need just our kind word and mental support. So I think those, those members of our community and our society should be the priority this this Ramadan, and this is, I think, what uh, I'm uh, personally I, I'm trying to to find ways to to, to do. Yeah, uh, of course we do pray to the Almighty that uh, by the next Ramadan, latest, inshallah, we go back to the normal. I mean, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Dr. Ahmed, for sharing these personal reflections and your memories with us, and for uh, for telling us about Ramadan in Bosnia. That was Dr. Ahmed Alivarsic, Associate Professor at the Faculty of Islamic Studies in Sarajevo. We were discussing Ramadan in Bosnia. Thank you, Ahmed. Thank you. Our next guest is Ibtisam Ahmed. She is a lawyer and independent researcher from Cape Town, South Africa. And she's also a co-founder and managing editor of Hikayat, an online platform showcasing content by Muslims. Welcome, Ibtisam. Thank you very much. Uh, if the sun is joining us from Cape Town, uh, so we do have a little bit of a time difference, but it's going to work out hopefully pretty good. So, um, if the sun, can you tell us a little bit about your memories growing up Muslim in South Africa and how was Ramadan observed back then, especially in your family? Sure. So, I mean, to me, so much of my story um, and my experience of Ramadan is particularly in Cape Town. And it's worthwhile saying that the experience of Muslims in Cape Town differs quite significantly from the experience of Muslims elsewhere in the country. And a lot of that has to do with the history of the Muslims who first arrived in Cape Town. Uh, this is over 500 years ago, slaves from the Indonesian archipelago. Uh, and in that way, the sort of flavor of the way Islam is practiced in Cape Town is very different to other parts of the country um, where people came much later. So we're thinking 200 years ago, mostly from the Indian subcontinent. Um, so for me, I've grown up very much uh, sort of between two kinds of uh, worlds in, uh, in South Africa. Uh, I've, my father is of Indian descent and my mother's of Cape Malay descent. Uh, and growing up in Cape Town, uh, Ramadan was always a very joyous time, uh, something to look forward to, something that even as kids, we knew the significance of it somehow. Um, interestingly, though, I think it is worth saying that, I mean, I, I grew up post-apartheid, right? So I'm one of the born frees. So a South African that was born uh, into democracy, uh, into a free society, um, and for us, it was, for, for me growing up at school uh, and around, people knew what Ramadan was. You know, like I have very vivid memories of like my first couple of fasts, uh, you know, on the playground and my friends being like, you know, oh, I don't want to eat in front of you. 
you know, and, and how's the fast going? Uh, never something that, you know, never mocked or ridiculed or poked fun at in any way. And that's something that's quite unique, I've learned, uh, that lots of Muslims in other, who are living in non-Muslim countries uh, don't necessarily experience that, this kind of positive reaction and curiosity about what it is that you're doing. Um, and I think it's, it's something, like I said, it's unique to South Africa, but I think even more extraordinary given just the diverse makeup of people in this country. Uh, so, you know, that was, those are some of my very early memories. And, you know, with regards to my family, uh, of course, food is a big thing, as it is everywhere. Uh, all the particular iftar treats and, and special foods that come out in Ramadan. Uh, and the highlight was really taking cakes away to neighbors. So this is a very old tradition. Um, and because of the history of apartheid, people always, you know, because of living, you know, along racial lines and that kind of division, um, Muslim neighborhoods were, you know, Muslim neighborhoods. There'd be various uh, communities within Cape Town where the entire street and many streets surrounding you would be Muslim. And, you know, here comes this tradition of taking a plate of whatever you've prepared for your iftar table and swapping with a neighbor. Uh, and you end up having like seven different dishes uh, to break fast with. And, you know, that was really one of the, you know, the highlights for me growing up. That tradition is slowly dying, I have to say. And I think that's to do with, of course, people moving out of these very, uh, you know, segregated communities that are still a legacy of, of apartheid. Uh, but that was always hugely fun and tremendous and like super exciting you know taking all the kids going and, and swapping plates yeah so what is your favorite dish okay during ramadan growing I up mean, so again because of the there are a number of influences culinary influences in south africa with its like mix of different kinds of people so of course samosas are the standard the subcontinent you know triangles with delicious fillings inside so that's a favorite of mine um but there's another kind of more Cape Malay tradition, which are basically crepes, so very thin crepes, but inside is a kind of cinnamon, coconut, sugary filling. And that's like a, a Cape Town classic, and it's it's perfect, and it's great, and I'm craving one right now, as we're speaking. Yeah, I know. I, when I was in Malaysia, I used to eat something similar. They would make crepes uh, green color. I think they would put green coloring, and then they would put coconut and sugar, I think Pam sugar and, and everything else inside. And it is absolutely delicious, I agree. <laughs> Great. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about some of the main practices among South African Muslims today during the month of Ramadan? And when I say today, I, I mean pre-COVID, you know, during normal times, what are some of the religious and other practices of South African Muslims? Sure, so for South African Muslims, this is, you know, something that I also, you know, I've always perceived it as being very normal um, until, you know, traveling elsewhere. It's actually a time of retreat in some ways. So people are very social when it comes to the iftar and breaking the fast. But, you know, come Isha time, people start going to the mosque, doing taraweh, and it's a very quiet kind of atmosphere. Uh, you know, obviously many other countries, you know, there's a lot of socializing, you know, into the early hours of the morning. That doesn't really happen here. People are, you know, they'll do socializing around iftar and it's quite a, you know, normal thing to go to the mosque Taraweh. And it's 20 rakats and the whole Quran is recited um, throughout that month, which again shocked me because I thought that was done everywhere um, until I spent, you know, Ramadan in, in other countries and, and saw that it is quite different. Um, but it is very much a time of, I think, going inward and, you know, South African Muslims are quite, you know, joyful when it comes to many of the other uh, religious celebrations like Molud and things like that. But somehow Ramadan really takes on a very different flavor. And, you know, growing up as well, you know, you know, there's like no TV and no movies and no music. Um, and, you know, it being very much a break with your, you know, daily routine and, and, and all the other kind of entertainment and things you're involved in. Uh, which is, you know, so different to places where, you know, many, like, there are series in production and movies in production geared for this month. Uh, so in that way, there's, it's, it's, I think, to me, it's a good balance. You know, you see people, 
you feed people, you interact, you share food. Um, but it is also a time of deeply, you know, spiritual reflection and, and inward nourishment. Yeah. So, um, so obviously COVID has changed a lot all around the world. So how is general situation in Cape Town right now with COVID and how is that impacting the Ramadan practices? So at the moment, uh, we are on our version, we call it level one. So there are not too many restrictions. Uh, mosques are open. We're allowed 250 people in a mosque. We can go to each other's houses and do sort of minimal socializing. Uh, last year was very different. Last year was the strict lockdown. Everything was closed. You could only you know, get your essentials. Um, and that was difficult. That was difficult in, in some ways, but then also easy in others. And in speaking to you know friends and family and asking them you know particularly based off of last year's Ramadan how they felt uh, because of the sort of you know retreat and and moving into an inward space that we usually take on in the month the transition from that hard lockdown into Ramadan was actually quite a pleasant one and so many people I've spoken to myself included like last year's Ramadan was incredible because there was already that pace of slowness and being away from a lot of, you know, distractions and other things and being in your home and sort of, you know, being very low-key and, and, and sort of quiet. Um, right now, it feels more or less like a normal Ramadan this year. Um, of course, you know, there are some restrictions, uh, but, you know, we're still, people are able to go to the mosque for Tarawih and, and that, you know, like I said, is, is something, you know, men and women are, you know, do and, and, and practice um, every, every Ramadan. Yeah, so um, when you mentioned earlier about reciting the whole Quran and the Taraweeh prayers, um, do you have other, uh, you know, ways of reciting the Quran in the mosque in Ramadan? I was talking with, you know, with Professor Ali Bashic from Bosnia, and in Bosnia they have a practice where after the uh, the Fajr morning prayer or after the Asr prayer, they would recite one Jews, you know, one thirtieth of the Quran or half of it, uh, and for Taraweeh they would they would keep it shorter. So, is there something like that um, in Cape Town or in South Africa, or is it purely that, that the Quran is recited in Taraweeh? So mainly it is the Quran being recited in Taraweeh, but based on different mosques, um, people would do maybe half a juice before Maghrib, um, and then at another half a juice after after the Fajr prayer. But that's in addition to, you know, the whole Quran being recited in, in the month. Um, there also are like a number of Kira competitions that happen in this month. So there'll be like an entire day where, you know, kind of upcoming reciters of the Quran will be, you know, judged and they'll do this. It's also uh, the, a great time for people, you know, to celebrate younger, you know, children who have just completed memorization. Uh, there tend to be, you know, some like little events and, and celebrations around that. Um, the other very big and common practice is, you know, the Nasiha Postarawe. So based on what was recited in that night, the imam or somebody will give a short little explanation of a particular aspect, a particular ayat of Quran. Um, and people, you know, are like they love that. You know, that's that's really a thing people do stay until the end and engage and, and want to listen. Uh, because, of course, most most South Africans don't understand Arabic. So it's, you know, it's always something to to look forward to and you sort of put together what has been recited um, for the for that night. Yeah, it makes me wish I could I could be in Cape Town now and, and partake in all in all of that. Um you mentioned earlier that both men and women go to mosques for Taraweeh, and that is a practice most places, almost everywhere in the world, I think. Um, but can you maybe highlight some of the practices that are uniquely related to how women experience Ramadan in your community? Sure. So I think, you know, like everywhere, so much of, of the conversation on women and Ramadan is around feeding people, right? not just families, mm -hmm. but, you know, cooking extra for a people who, you know, are living in poverty in South Africa. There are a number of people, you know, living in, in huge and, and utter poverty, um, you know, and uh, there are many sort of groups and, and neighborhoods of women that would come together and cook a part of food and it would be distributed for that day. Uh, so it's almost that the sense and the, the importance and significance of feeding people is heightened in Ramadan. 
and that's something that people uh, that that women partake in uh, in in quite a profound way. But the other thing that also takes place is in a number of mosques or even in just homes, there'll be like once a week where you know women will gather, maybe recite Quran, and then you know one of the women will give like a kind of dars afterwards. Um, and you know that's the kind of it's like the women's day. You know, so like the mosque very close to where I live, Tuesday is the women's day. So you have like something like 600 women. This is pre-COVID would gather in the mosque on a Tuesday morning, you know, and they'd have the space to do what they do and have their program on, on that day. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I think that Albash also mentioned in Bosnia, they have in some mosques, uh, they have this practice called muqabala, which is re recitation of the Quran during the day. And in some mosques, there are these muqabalas that are just for women. There will be female reciters of the Quran and only women coming there to listen. So it seems like there is there is some similarity there too. Um, finally, Ibtisam, maybe if you could share with us some brief personal reflection on Ramadan. Sure. So, I mean, for me, you know, it always feels like this month creeps up on you. Like every year you somehow think, oh, you know, I'm going to be prepared and I'm you know, going to have all my things in order and a real program. And suddenly it's like, Oh, in two days' time, it's Ramadan. Um, but I think whenever it does come, it always feels like it's just at the perfect time. Because, you know, to me, it's the break with the usual work routine, the usual family routine, the usual social routine. And there's something that changes uh, in in this time. And to me, it almost, it's like it just, it shifts something in you. And, and sometimes it's hard and you've got to like super adjust to the new pace uh, but for me, I find it, it's just such a, a necessary thing. And I think that particularly in COVID and, and thinking about the state that, you know, the world was in last year, this time, um, it was such an anchor. And to me, Ramadan is that, that, you know, no matter what is going on in the world and how, you know, disastrous it may seem, Ramadan's Ramadan, you know, like, like the Salah is the Salah, yeah. you, you, it will be an anchor even if there's complete chaos and uncertainty throughout all of that, you have this anchor and you have this grounding. Um, and, and to me, that's one of the most extraordinary benefits of this month. Thank you for sharing that personal reflection. Uh, I was talking to Ibtisam Ahmed, a lawyer, independent researcher based in Cape Town, South Africa. Thank you, Ibtisam. Thank you very much. Our final guest is Lynn Ifanafatufina. She is from Indonesia and she joined us from Chicago. Uh, welcome, Lean. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Ermin. You're most welcome. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you in our podcast. So, uh, Lean Ifanafatufina is a doctoral student at the University of Chicago School of Divinity. She is from Indonesia. She was born in East Java. Uh, she resides in Yogyakarta, where she is also a lecturer at the State Islamic University in Yogyakarta. Uh, right now, she's on a study leave in Chicago at the University of Chicago's Divinity School, and she also has an MA in Islamic Studies from Hartwood Seminary. So, Lynn, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your experiences growing up in Indonesia, especially in Java, and how was the observance of Ramadan in your community and in your family? First of all, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, and what an, uh, what an initiative uh, this podcast, I mean. So thank you for uh, being the curator of, of this podcast. Um, growing up in Indonesia, um, so the most obvious ones is that my neighbors are were all Muslims. Um, I, I only later that I encountered a non-Muslim friends, uh, non-Muslim friends personally. Um, and then mosques are everywhere. You would hear other than five times a day. And then the community is very communal. Um, and that's what I what I really miss from living in Indonesia. And and life was full of religious rituals and ceremonies, commemorations uh, conducted by you know us as a community. Also, in terms of education. Um, I think most of us, at least in the village where I live in, we went to I went to school formal formal schooling in the morning and then in the afternoon and in the or in the evening, 
I went to Madrasa or Kutab, you know, to learn how to recite the Quran and to learn Islamic sciences, um, you know, fiqih, uh, aqidah, akhlaq, history, those things. And this pattern went on until my uni- university life. So in the morning, I went to formal schoolings, universities, and then in the afternoon, in the afternoon, uh, in, the, in the evening, I I went to uh, formal, uh, informal schooling, you know, religious schools. Also, like most of us in, uh, let's say, like some uh, significant numbers of of Muslim families in in my neighborhood or like in my hometown, um, they they usually send their children to pondok pesantren, traditional Islamic boarding school. I my my parents sent me off to a pondok pesantren when I was in my senior high school. So I lived in I lived in uh, pondok pesantren twenty four seven for three years, and then continuing uh, I continued living in another pondok pesantren for my university life. So basically, I studied in in I I went to a formal school in 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 the pesantren, and then in the evening, afternoon, I went to. Uh, religious classes so so things like that oh and and, and ramadan right so, you were asking about ramadan or you want to follow up yes please yeah yeah that's um, exactly what i wanted to ask so can you tell us a little bit about experiences in your in your community your family and in pasantren in 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 your islamic schools how was the observance of ramadan there um not much different from today actually so mom cooked for Sahar, you know, he, she she uh, woke up around two or three in the morning, and then school was only half day, which which was good. And then in the afternoon, similar thing. We went to the mat- we went to madrasa, uh, and then I bought a lot of snacks that I thought I would eat all of them, but then you know, as kids, you know, but then you you happen to not being able to eat all. And then Iftar was at home, not in the mosque. Tarawih in the mosque, of mm-hmm. course. And then after that, um, I went to the mosque to recite the Quran with my peers. Um, and it was really a special moment to me uh, because because it was broadcasted uh, throughout the neighborhood. So everyone listens to our recitation. So it was like, oh, I should, I should make sure that I recite the Quran well. So so yeah, that was his. And I think in in. Oh, so that was publicly broadcast on speaker. Sorry. So that was publicly broadcast on speakers, and everybody in the in the village could hear you reciting. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah, it that's was... a lot of pressure. <laughs> that was a lot of pressure. That's true. <laughs> and 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 I I asked my brothers who live in who's, who lived with my mom in in the village, that the tradition continues today. Even uh, before Maghrib, uh, they hold what we call Tarusan. So it's, of course, from Taras, but Tarusan in, in this context really means Quranic recitation. Yeah, that, that's really interesting because I was I was speaking earlier with Dr. Ali Bashit from Bosnia. And in Bosnia, they have this um, practice called Muqabala, which is also recitation of the Quran in the mosque. And it seems like there is a, pretty much the same practice in Indonesia, and you call it Tarusan. Um, so uh, you mentioned that you recited and it was broadcast. Uh, was there any restriction or limitation on women in terms of, did anybody ever say that women should not recite publicly or anything like that? How, how was it? Not at all. And I've heard the discourse only very much later in my, uh, in my life when I read you know, the news or whatever happens in, in the West or, or in the Middle East. So it was, it was really something that, that was unknown to me, that women couldn't recite the Quran in public. Mm-hmm. So, so when you gathered in the mosque, where, uh, so both men and women would attend, and did you have female teachers and reciters as well? I think we do, we do. But, but in Madrasa, we mingle, like we have, boys and girls in the same room and sometimes we have female sometimes we have male uh teachers 
and they taught not only uh, how to recite the Quran, but also you know like fiqh, akhlaq, aqidah, those things. I see. All right. So tell us what is your favorite Ramadan dish in Indonesia? What is your favorite Indonesian Ramadan dish that you like and that you miss the most right now? Um, we we have kola. Kola is is like dessert. So a water, coconut milk, and then uh, palm sugar. And then you would add uh -huh. uh, either, uh, what is it, like bananas or fruits or like beans, you know, in it. That's a staple dish to, to break your fast. Um, but what I miss is my mom's cooking. Like every sahur, usually she cooked, uh, but it's, it's, not, it's not really uh, a Ramadan dish, but the Ramadan dish in my family. Uh, grilled eggplant with coconut milk sauce. It was like the best, and I really miss it. I, I, when I go home during Ramadan, I always ask her to please make me some of this dish. That sounds so yummy. Uh, you mentioned sahur, which is a pre-dawn meal that Muslims get up very early in the morning before starting on the fast. They have that meal and then they fast through the day and then comes at the sunset. There is another meal. I'm just uh, translating that terminology for people who may not be familiar with it. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit to today. Can you tell us some of the general practices among Indonesian Muslims during Ramadan? What are the things that stand out? What are some of the things that are really unique for uh, during Ramadan uh, in terms of religious practices? In terms of the basics, you know, of course, every you know, everywhere is the same in the Muslim world, right? Like Taraweeh, uh, Sahur, and then Iftar. Um, but before talking about some main practices in Indonesia, we, we need to keep in mind that Indonesia is a huge place, you know, hundreds of languages and tribes uh, live in Indonesia. But I would mention like some highlights. Uh, we have some practices some uh, that, that happened only during Ramadan. The first is Ngabuburit. It might be difficult to pronounce. Ngabuburit is, is events between Asr and Maghrib. So the idea is that um, you would spend the time uh, waiting for the time for bringing your fast while doing activities. It can be, it can be anything like from uh, reciting the Quran together, live music, discussions, preaching, discussions on any topic, not only religious, just anything. You you can call it ngabuburit as long as it is conduct, it, it is held uh, between Asr and Maghrib. That's one thing. The other thing is we have a tradition called buka bersama, bukber. Buka bersama is uh, literally means praying uh, fast together. And you know, institutions, communities, colleagues, friends usually organize buka bersama. Um, and sometimes uh, we use this moment to, you know, as a moment of a reunion. For example, I want to get my friends from elementary school together. Okay, let's have buka bersama together. Um, uh, calling for sahur time. Probably it happens in in the other parts of the Muslim world also. Like. Kids usually wander around the neighborhood with percussions like sahur, sahur, something like that. Um, and then, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think those those things uh, pretty stand out. Also, we we have a tradition of ziarah to, uh, you know, visiting the graveyards of our families that have passed. Um, in some regions, it is done before Ramadan. Some during Ramadan, some after Salat Idul Fitr, um, and and some involves meals. Some is conducted individually by families. Some is you know organized uh, by people as community. So so this is also important. Yeah. Thank you, Lean. Uh, but I'm sure this COVID pandemic has also changed things in Indonesia too. So um, maybe you can tell us a bit about how did it. COVID pandemic maybe affected this? How did it affect these practices? Um, how does 
how did communities respond to these things now? Yeah, of course, because um, like in Indonesia, and I believe in anywhere in the Muslim world, Ramadan is not only about you know personal observation of religion, but but it really involves community, right? Like if I men- when I mentioned to you about Ngabuburit Bukber, it involved a community gathering together in a in in a in a place. Um, last year, since Ramadan was really in the in the start of pandemic. Everybody was anxious. The government took serious measure that, you know, don't gather. So the Ramadan was was rather uh what is it? Like more uh it was it wasn't as crowded as before. Uh many people prefer not to mm-hmm. uh do the Tarawih in the mosque. Of course, Ngabuburit events were moved online. Uh, Bukber were were not as many as Bukber event the the breaking fast together were not as many as before. But this year I heard that people uh, that everyone everyone is more relaxed about you know gathering together. Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, of course it was for example like last year even in 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 my village people still went for tara uh, went for tarawih prayer but they maintain social distancing. That they they still do it today in the mosque, but they are more relaxed. Like people are willing to go out to the mosque more uh, since it's been more than a year. Yeah, and that's what I hear from many other places. Uh, very similar measures are being taken. Aline, finally, can you maybe share with our listeners a personal reflection on Ramadan? My personal reflection. I I remember. Um, a teaching from one of my teachers that I always remember. Um, so he he said that Ramadan is only a training. And, and in reality, we should leave Ramadan throughout. We should live as if we, we are in the month of Ramadan throughout our life. Um, that, you know, Fasting is really the principle of living, and you know, like you, you, you cannot indulge your appetite, your desire, as you wish. But you, you are, you, you need to always be in a in a state of refraining, like holding, understanding boundaries. And and he said that um, having this mindset about life, that life is really about fasting is very important let alone today where we live in a society where capitalism and materialism is really uh its breath i think yeah so i think that yeah that is thank you thank you so much you mentioned boundaries the edges islam on the edges it's all (laughs) about boundaries and then ending them from time to time thank you so much lean for this wonderful conversation You are welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, you have been listening to episode two of the Islam on the Edges channel of the Maidan podcast. Please subscribe to Islam on the Edges on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other services. And we hope that you will be joining us for our future episodes. Take care, be well, and be healthy.